0: The Power of One is brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, available only on Amazon Prime Video.
1: It's no secret that drug cartels are a problem in Mexico. Somewhere between seven and 11,000 of Mexico's annual homicides, that's as many as half, are tied to them. For years, though, an everyday tragedy killed more people, particularly young people. Traffic accidents. It's especially serious in the capital, where congestion is notorious. Nearly
0: 400 cities around the world uh, to track the cost of inefficient traffic. Topping the list, Mexico City.
1: Just six years ago, a thousand people died every year in traffic accidents in Mexico City alone. An average of three a day. More than half were pedestrians. It's a problem that needed fixing. And a few years ago, Reform started in what might sound like an unlikely corner, with a group of people led by an artist and journalist and filmmaker named Gabriela Gomez-Mont. Gomez-Mont was not a policymaker. She'd never worked in government. She had no training in urban planning or theory. She made and curated art and told stories and thought, really thought about the world. That had earned her an intriguing new job in 2013 as creative director of a new municipal organization for Mexico City. I'll try to say the name right. Laboratorio para la Ciudad. The laboratory for the city. Her lab decided to tackle road safety. And it didn't focus on art installations or a clever awareness campaign. The kinds of things you might expect from an artist turned creative director. Gomez-Mont and her team launched a data project. They pulled in numbers from insurance companies and police. They pored over when and where accidents happened. They targeted speed limits, which could be as high as 80 kilometers an hour. They looked at licensing. Last year, a blind woman got a driver's license elsewhere in Mexico. And this was the start of Mexico City's first comprehensive road safety plan. A massive undertaking with almost immediate results. Here's Gabriela Gomez-Mont.
2: We actually managed to reduce um, deaths by, I I believe it was 17% in two years. I mean, I can't think of anything more
1: important than a government can do than save lives. In fact, many of the 50 or so experiments launched by her group had little to do with showcasing art or beautifying the city. They were ambitious civic experiments to serve the people of a teeming global city that bursts with culture and ideas and life, but also social inequity and crime and the problems that come with those things. We were actually the first lab
2: in Latin America, the first lab in an emerging economy and the first lab in a megalopolis. And in a certain sense another thing that I think is interesting of cities like Mexico City is it's one of the largest city economies in the world. Like our GDP is equivalent to that of the whole of Chile for example, no? It is incredibly unequal, which is a problem. It is
1: incredibly diverse, which is an asset. Gomez-Mont and her lab offered a hopeful new model for how things could work in more and more cities all over the world. You are listening to The Power of One, a podcast devoted to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who've changed their world and ours. I'm your host, Sarmistha Subramanian. This week, we bring you the story of Gabriela Gomez-Mont, a woman who's been dubbed a kind of Minister of Imagination for her city, From that post, she tackled some of its toughest problems, sometimes in its most neglected and most dangerous neighborhoods, with remarkable results. Her projects were watched with interest across the globe, and she's now taking her ideas and hard-won wisdom outside Mexico. She's working with groups in the Philippines, South Korea, Vietnam, and Cambodia. She's a visiting fellow with Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and on the advisory board of the Mars Solution Lab in Toronto. She's at the forefront of a new global conversation to rethink the modern metropolis. Laboratories are good places for making things. And the idea of connecting the lab and the city goes at least as far back as the 20s, when a group of Chicago sociologists dubbed the city itself a kind of laboratory. Its buildings and spaces created and shaped behavior. But labs as incubators for smart policy that tackles complex social problems, those are a more recent phenomenon. Innovation labs have popped up over the past two decades in Toronto and Boston, Copenhagen and London, Singapore, Adelaide, Helsinki. Some of those, at least, are places with money. And smaller problems. Mexico City would be both an exciting and a challenging place to run an innovation lab. First of all, I was shell-shocked. Mexico City is 9.5 million people city proper,
2: 21 million people on a metropolitan area, and with a floating population of 6 million
1: people coming every day to work. So this is the size of a country. If so, it's a country with at least 85,000 millionaires and a GDP of close to 500 billion U.S. dollars a year. Higher than Toronto, Ottawa, and Calgary combined. But it's also one in which millions live below the poverty line. Its air quality ranks in the bottom fifth of OECD metropolitan areas. Its poorest sections don't have access to drinking water much of the year. This was the city Gomez-Mont was taking on. Part of the problem was logistical. Mexico City, like many cities in the emerging world, relies on informal systems. An ad hoc network of privately run buses is the city's most used transit. Half the country is employed in a kind of long-standing gig economy. Even though its residents, like people everywhere, unwittingly hand over reams of personal data to big tech, there were vast gaps in useful civic data about how people live. And not only is the city itself vast and complex, so is the infrastructure that runs it. Because
2: Mexico City has about 280,000 other public servants,
1: so this is a whole city. So anything that you think about has huge departments with huge budgets. The relationship between that city within the city and the people it represents hasn't traditionally been the warmest. This is something of a fact of life in Mexico. The
2: mistrust between government and our public and our and our citizens is huge. Like you know, the last Pew survey says that only eight percent of Mexicans believe in democracy. Like eight percent, we're one of the lowest rates of trust between our public institutions and our citizens.
1: And then Gomez Mont had another handicap, a job title like creative director of a city can sound pretty fanciful in a country where half of urban residents live below the food poverty line.
2: There was a very relevant and very uncomfortable question, if you will, of saying, why should we be using government and public funds for experimentation when there's so many urgencies across our city? And that, I think, was one of the most important questions that was posed in a critical fashion at the beginning of the lab that most helped me stake out what our territory needed to be and how even when thinking of innovation, let's say, when you think about AI, when you think about data, when you think about all of these things it would seem to be better fit to the, the, you know, the alpha cities, quote unquote, of the world, what relevance does
1: it have in a place like ours? Her answer to that question was partly philosophical.
3: Her famous line, or one of her famous lines, imagination is not a luxury, and her recognition that transdisciplinarity and creativity and bureaucracy are is not oxymoronic is a very important contribution. That's
1: Jane Engel, Director of Cities for People at the McConnell Foundation, and a leader at the Toronto-based initiative Future Cities. This is how Gomez Mont herself explains it. In a certain sense, I think it's very easy for us
2: in the emerging world to suddenly get stuck in our emergencies. There's so many things that need to be solved. There's the poverty lines, the inequality are incredibly urgent. What the city does and how you're supposed to be government and do government is actually completely entrenched in the day-to-day life of a city without the capacity to imagine what could, could be possible 10, 20 years hence. And hence, the creative imaginative aspect of how you solve your urban challenges becomes even more of a necessity so i'd argue for a heightened necessity in these latitudes
1: instead of it being a luxury if you will to imagine solutions that really mattered gomez mont and her team set out to discover what the problems actually looked like for this they needed numbers data statistics the lab had a staff of 20 gomez mont had assembled a diverse team Urban geographers, political scientists, programmers, historians, filmmakers. The lab teamed up developers with city agencies to scrape valuable government data. The urban geographers helped create hundreds of maps that would provide a snapshot of statistics across neighborhoods. Incomes, demographics, environmental indices. And then we had to name one
2: example, a tool where you could actually see the concentration of children block by block across all of Mexico City. You could correlate that to indexes of inequality and marginalization. And then you could cross that with access or lack of access to public space. So then you could query the system very easily and say like, OK, tell me where there is more than 200 kids in uh, X diameter and that it it will take them at the very least 20 minutes to 30 minutes to walk to the nearest public space. And then
1: you'd get the hotspots. In other words... All those ones and zeros the lab scraped from government agencies and other websites together painted a picture of the city that was arguably more granular and detailed and vivid than anything Mexico City had had. And it laid bare some of the needs and unspoken wishes of its most neglected residents. Maybe, on second thought, this was very much an artist's solution to a vexing policy conundrum. Of all Greater Mexico City's neglected residents, few were more neglected than the five million children who live there. That's roughly the entire population of Ireland or Costa Rica. Now imagine if the governments of those countries didn't design any policies for their citizens. That, says Gabriela Gomez-Mont, was the fate of the kids of Mexico City, a huge population whose needs had never really been considered by city governments. The lab was perfectly poised to change that. The average age of staff, like that of Mexico City, was around 29. Many of the people working on these projects had been children themselves not that long ago. It is often said that children are the future. In terms of Mexico
2: City and other places, children are not the future. They are the present. So this is a huge chunk of your population that you have never created an optic to read the city and to address their necessities. I mean, we have obviously the urgent stuff, again, of being stuck in a crisis of what happens with battered children, what happens with bullying in the school. But this is an emergency-based agenda that even though I believe is incredibly important and necessarily, we cannot leave out of the equation the city that we want for our kids. That was step one. Step two is because of our urban geography department, we started figuring out that in, in terms of inequality, The way that that childrenhood, if you will, is distributed across the city very much correlates with more marginalized, um, more impoverished, more
1: violent communities. That is to say that the places with the greatest concentration of kids also tended to be the places that had the least amount of public space and greenery, the fewest resources. The Gulf is startlingly apparent in overhead photos of Mexico City. The borough of Iztapalapa, for instance has 2 million people, half a million kids. Parts of East Apalapa have less than a half square meter of green space per person, whereas other neighborhoods, with far fewer people, have as much as 45. Some of this is baked into the city's history.
2: 60% of Mexico City is was uh, originally informal settlements that have more or less formalized with time. You'll be familiar with this because this is also what it looks like in Delhi. Possibly Mexico City is more formalized because I still think that Delhi has more precarious uh, urban scape in terms of its informality. Here it's already like houses that have running water, that have, you know, they're mostly cement and uh, et cetera, et cetera. No? But still, like since these, the 60% of the city was constructed more um, in terms of the urgencies again, and not necessarily a, a future vision, many of these spaces don't have public space. And unlike other neighborhoods that we work with, let's say the historic center where we
1: rescued underutilized space, here there's nothing to rescue because it does, just does not exist. Gomez-Mont and her team wanted to make those neighborhoods more hospitable for kids. But how to create parks and play areas out of nothing?
2: And so what we did was go off into our own little world, start thinking about this, do it first with uh, non-permanent streets, then came up with a new typology and a new system
1: of streets where we could close down several um, uh, streets that would create a, a playscape. And then some of those neighborhoods were also the most dangerous in Mexico City. How to enter those communities safely. That is when many
2: times one would think, okay, let's backtrack, let's not work here. But then it just becomes this multiplying effect where the places, once again, that need it most are ignored because the complexities are such. When it's actually the places that need more attention, that need more imagination, that need very different ways of thinking about the issues. Some of these communities, one of the reasons why they've become dangerous is because neighbors no longer know each other because the city sprawled so quickly that a sense of local local touch was lost along the way. And we went knocking on doors. People would say, well, yes, you can come, but there's actually no children here. But we already knew through our, our maps that it was actually one of the highest concentration of kids in the city. And then we would close down the streets and neighbors would come out and you'd have them sitting on their little stools while the kids played and all of this and then actually joining the games as well. And it was so interesting to, first of all, hear them getting to know each other for the first time. Because besides, kids are such an amazing equalizing force. Like, you know, you can be... Maybe even the head of a, like a local gang. But if you have kids and your other neighbor has kids, that is one of the spaces where you can actually start seeing eye to eye. And then the second thing is that, you know, it was so interesting to me to hear the neighbor saying like, I had no idea there were so many children here. Here's Jane
3: Engel. She, she was constantly pushing boundaries and um, remaining open to new ways of doing and new ways of seeing things. And her focus on children and, uh, and even how we could better understand imagination, um, including by harnessing the imagination of children and in creating a city for children um, first and foremost, because then it would be a better city for everyone. Uh, those were quite important things.
1: Temporary changeable play spaces were a natural answer in a place where growth happens organically. In fact, the adaptive, agile nature of many of the lab solutions was in perfect tune with the city itself. Busy, gloriously messy, full of enterprise. Like many of the world's largest cities, Mexico City is full of businesses that have popped up to fill unmet needs. Take the city's almost 30,000 microbuses, the white and green transit buses beetling around the city. Mexico City has a 12 line metro, a huge public infrastructure project started in the 70s. But the microbuses, called peseros, aren't run by the public transit authority. They're one of the city's many informal systems. Between them, they run more than 14 million rides a day and account for 60% of transit use. Yet there were no schedules, no system route map, no marked stops. And we had no idea
2: what was happening on the ground because um, it grew organically with the city, which expanded 35 times in size from the 60s to the 90s. Until very recently, with a change of law, if you were an individual, like if you wanted your own bus, you could just like say, "Okay, I want my own bus. (laughs) So as you can imagine, it it, it, it became an interesting challenge both to drive transportation, mobility policy, as well as a user of the city. The
1: lab decided to create a transit map, a fantastical logistical challenge. It partnered with 12 city organizations and appealed to transit users to play a citywide game with prizes. Some 4,000 users stepped up using the GPS on their phones, taking pictures of stops, sharing information that then went in a database. And then a kind of public hackathon took that raw data and turned it into usable tools and applications. The end goal was to create maps that could be used by people who don't have phones. In two weeks, they'd gathered enough data to map a staggering 1,700 bus routes on 50,000 kilometers of road. This had never been done. At the same time, Gabriela Gomez Mont was interested in a different kind of atlas. On city grids of bus stops and traffic accidents and air quality and income distribution, her lab overlaid a much more subjective map. As she puts it, the city that lives in people's heads. Part of what we did for
2: that was to survey 31,000 people across 1,400 neighborhoods to ask them some very simple but very powerful questions, which was like, what are the first three words that come to mind when you think about Mexico City? What are what do you think are the three biggest challenges? What are the three things that you love most about the city? How do you imagine the future of Mexico City? In terms of the futures, we also found out things that, even though we were prompting for positive imaginations, if you will, of the future of the city, we basically got back uh, apocalyptical Mad max scenarios. So... Is that important for government? Like, should government think about policy taking into account that we have not been capable to imagine a collective future? I dare say history shows us that yes, that it's actually really important. Now, how to solve for that is a whole other thing.
0: Hey, I'm Kyle Fulton. I'm the producer of Power of One, and I wanted to tell you a bit about the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. He's not your typical hero, but the political fate of the nation rests in his hands. John Krasinski returns as the titular CIA officer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. The latest season takes the former analyst to South America to solve a global conspiracy that spans the UK, Russia, Venezuela, and back home in the US. Follow along the action-packed mission in the new season, now available on Prime Video.
1: The idea of the modern city as machine, efficient, productive, dehumanizing, goes back a long way. It was an idea captured perfectly in the iconic opening scenes of the 1927 film, Metropolis. Those menacing cogs and factory wheels, the processions of workers. The machine metaphor endures today. But Gomez-Mont and a growing cluster of thinkers believe it's time for a new idea. I do think that there is
2: an issue, talking about modernism and efficiency, where nowadays, because there's data we might be in danger the world over of revisiting modernism, but under accelerated terms, like, you know, when it would seem to be that efficiency is all there is. And as a good friend of mine would say, that then serendipity, which has played such a huge role in everything from inventiveness and social inventiveness, as well as uh, scientific discoveries What happens when that becomes something that is completely left out of the way that we have been thinking about the cities and when the name of the game is hyper-efficiency? Here's
1: Jane Engel on the need for a new model
3: let's not assume that the dominant paradigm for how we currently build our cities needs to persist. It has persisted for so long and, uh, you know, for, for, for 80 years or so, it has persisted in ways that have really only been deeply changed by technologies. It hasn't really been changed by any d- deep imaginative possibilities. And I think we desperately need that now for the health Not only of our cities, but also for uh, for our planet.
1: Gomez Mont felt instinctively that the answers lay in the chaos and multiplicity of the city itself, which at ground level doesn't look like that ordered engine of productivity. People intermingle; disparate forces bump into one another. That was the kind of energy she wanted in the lab, and she wanted the voices of citizens, but not in the narrow spaces allowed by city bureaucracy. I have the feeling that government decided that their
2: main role was to be provider of services and who received the complaints and did something about them. We're starting to figure out that it is just as important for government to paint a picture of possibility, to really, really flesh out those futures that we
1: imagine collectively. gomez doesn't tend to talk in the buzzwords of urban theorists and think tanks. Jargon occasionally pops up in her language, but she also has an artist's ability to make people feel. She talks about the capacity to imagine, about the power of neighbors and citizens. She wanted to harness the energy of artists and philosophers, but she didn't just want them making art or thinking about theory. You know, artists many times have been uh, doing public space, for example, no, that, you
2: know, of creating a beautiful statue, a beautiful installation, this and that. But what the lab tried to do, which I think uh, put that equation on its head a bit. So, what happens when you have artists creating laws? you know, jointly with political scientists, and which was part of the question, what happens when you have a creative
1: team working on constitutions? What happened was that Mexico City got a crowdsourced constitution, a document shaped by hundreds of thousands of citizens online. The project was launched by the city's mayor, Miguel Angel Mancera, with the lab playing a vital role. More than 30,000 residents submitted ideas, There were 340 official proposals, and some 400,000 unique users voted on them on Change.org Mexico. 14 articles of the new constitution were based on petitions from residents. It was a large-scale experiment in digital democracy, and the result was not just a symbol or a gesture. When the new constitution, aptly called the Carta Magna, was adopted in 2018, it changed some things. Historically, Mexico's capital was a federal district, like Washington D.C. That meant the Mexican government decided a host of city-level matters. The Carta Magna gave the capital a new designation, an autonomy over a slate of issues. Mexico is um,
2: akin to what a city-state would be like, even though it's not necessarily called that in term, because there is there is Mexico City is the beginning and the end of Mexico City, if you will. No. and the mayor has a mandate that has to do,
1: unlike other cities, with most every aspect of the city. It allowed the mayor to appoint the chief of police and the attorney general, for instance. It gave the city more control over health care. Mexico City is the seat of power of both the federal government as well
2: as the, ma- the local government. So we have, let's there, there will be like these national um, public hospitals, if you will. But Mexico City also has its own network of public hospitals as well and it also has a budget for, for public health and uh, everything. So everything from transportation to health to there's, I, 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 instead of telling you what it has under a mandate, the only things that it doesn't have is obviously mili- anything military. Um, the airport is national. The like super highways are national. Education is national. Um, and that's about it. Everything else is the mandate of the mayor.
1: And it even covered international strategy, allowing Mexico City to sign its own agreements, to make foreign policy in a sense. It enshrined a right to green space and to a dignified death. It committed to addressing natural disasters. It recognized the rights of a host of constituents, including children. The whole exercise mapped a new pathway for cities and urban leaders around the world were watching with interest. More and more, The world's population clusters in cities, and a broader political movement was gaining momentum on the global stage. Coalitions, like C40 cities, were galvanized by President Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Accord.
3: Here's Jane Engel. So uh, a now classic example of that is when some cities, including the city of Pittsburgh and others, said, wait a minute, you might want to be out of it, but we're not. We are committed to uh, change. And, and now that is a very important alliance for um, progressive change to address the climate crisis. And that's just one of, of many kinds of city alliances. And another interesting example is something called the uh, Global Parliament of Mayors.
1: That's a three-year-old alliance of some 75 city leaders inspired to come together by dispiriting national-level politics and the growing realization that cities are on the front lines of things like climate change. They need to plan for the consequences, even if their national governments don't.
3: So I think those kinds of alliances are very important because, again, very often we see at local level, not only do we see um, such a strong will for, um, for climate action, for addressing challenges like um, social inequality, social exclusion, um, opioid crises even, but we also have, uh, we have a much better uh, possibility for building public trust.
1: And this was perhaps the biggest legacy of the laboratorio's work in Mexico City.
2: One of the things that I'm really proud of is that, yes, we managed to create a place where people were willing to suspend this belief and engage with
1: government. Gomez-Mont hopes that sense of optimism will carry on, even though her lab has not. In 2018, the laboratorio was shut down. Mayor Mansera was voted out, and the new mayor closed the lab, announcing a narrower focus on digital innovation. It was one of a few pioneering labs to face that fate around the world. The Mind Lab in Denmark, one of the first of its kind, was similarly repurposed. Gomez Mont had pointedly chosen a broader job title, because when you think about, let's say, an innovation officer, well, you can
2: imagine them doing like tech stuff and um, giving you computers and. And a digital officer while making better websites and no, 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 no. We really wanted to add something new to the conversation, not only for Mexico City, but actually to the urban DNA
1: writ large uh, of cities across the world. This she has undoubtedly accomplished. Not all of the lab's projects were uniformly embraced over the years. Early on, an app developed to make taxi hailing safe faced criticism that it was irrelevant for the vast numbers of people who couldn't afford smartphones or taxis. And some raised questions about whether local projects launched by think tanks are enough, when what's needed is investment in infrastructure and policies to address inequality and crime. But Gomez-Mont showed how much a city lab could do.
3: Gabrielle is really one of the pioneers in civic innovation labs, for one thing. And so she she was able to build something over a period of time where she actually got to see some of the results of of, of her and, and her, her team's investments. And these kinds of things are just uh, ways of inviting people to co-create society in ways that very often people don't have a sense of agency to be able to do. At the same time, her lab also closed, and it's been very helpful to um, to learn from that. So for example, if a lab like hers, which seemed to be uh, beginning to make such important contributions and have transformative possibilities, if that kind of lab closed uh, for political reasons, then what does that tell us um, for other civic innovation labs? Well, one thing it tells me is that it's probably good if we can get um, that kind of imaginative civic innovation lab partly outside of city government so that it's not subject to the same political constraints. It's a
1: balancing act. A lab that is part of city government and has a mayor's authority behind it can also make things happen. Gomez-Mont tried to mitigate the political risks. Her lab was not entirely reliant on city funding. In later years, 70% of its budget came from foundations and other private sources. When the lab did close, its atoms, in a sense, just reconfigured into other shapes across the city. So right now, the same group of activists that we work with in terms of the road safety plan
2: are now working with the Senate of Mexico to actually create national law based on our experiences in Mexico City. Because, you know, the beautiful thing is that they don't see this as the road safety plan that the former government did. They see this as the road safety plan that we did. Another thing that is still happening is the lab for the first time created a kid's perspective on urban planning for Mexico City. And now both former team members of mine now have new studios that are specializing in this. And now we have many of the architect design studios that we worked with also becoming specialists in an agenda that was not on their radar before we started working collectively. And so this is, this is just like the joy that keeps on going and people from my, my former team are now
1: working with a new government. So the conversation continues in Mexico City and beyond. Gomez Mont is working on a book. She's launched two new organizations, the Urban Task Force and Experimentalista. When she came into the studio to speak with us in the fall, she was addressing the Future Cities Summit in Toronto. She said she'd had a month of exquisite fall colors a seasonal feature Mexico City doesn't have. She'd been at events in Kyoto and Budapest and Washington, D.C., and now Toronto. She's found a kindred spirit in the mayor of Seoul. Here's Jane Engel.
3: That's a place where um, there is a very bold mayor who transformed what was a highway uh, running straight through the center of the city, and he... um, destroyed it, to daylight the river that ran underneath it. And so now there is a river that runs through the center of Seoul, a massive infrastructure project and a massive transformation of the city.
1: Gomez-Mont is now working with Seoul and with groups in Manila and Danang in Vietnam. There's no better city template she can just drop into those places. She says she'll ask questions, meet with people, try to understand the needs of each place. Specificity matters, she learned. Cities in the developed world are equally keen to learn from her civic experiments. In the world as it is now, where we're suddenly
2: enveloped in challenges that we had not foreseen, um, and I think that possibly first world cities are being caught more by surprise. Between climate change, new political scenarios, the world over, like all of these extra questions that humanity has to face, you know, now Europe is actually studying how how they can inject more informal. Jobs into the system because the formal labor market is not necessarily sufficient for the growth of the population. No. So how do we uh, collaborate, especially in convoluted, contested, uh, complex cities such as Mexico City, Delhi, uh, Manila, Da Nang? But in a certain sense, these are the type of cities that are really well-placed. To ask questions that will be relevant on both sides of the border to other emerging cities that will be a lot more like us and not necessarily like these super the cities of the future that we imagine to be like Tokyo or like these incredibly, you know, futuristic smart cities. No, like most of the newer cities and the mega cities are being born in Latin America, in the African continent, in Asia, and they will have problems that are much more akin to our realities than others. And as I mentioned, like you know, the first world is unfortunately catching up.
1: The most profound lesson in Gomez-Mont's experience and the experience of her lab, though, may be the simplest. The stories in this podcast aim to capture the power of one. But Gabriela Gomez-Mont's power of one is in a sense the power of millions. It's a faith in the talents and wisdom and energy of ordinary citizens in ordinary neighborhoods. It's a belief that change can be made thoughtfully and for the better. It's an optimism that people When asked the right questions, we'll respond with imagination and generosity. And that their ideas, our ideas, can make a better way. Thanks for listening to The Power of One. Be sure to listen to our next episode about the unlikely hero who helped bring down one of America's most notorious mobsters.
3: The, the reason we get, we don't get the full, you know, Harlem Renaissance story when people talk about Harlem is, I, I think, you know, even now, even with the accomplishments of uh, people like Eunice Carter or the sort of running narrative of blackness in America is of, of degradation, of poverty, the primary narrative uh, makes it hard to imagine a place for Eunice Carter or other people like her in the sort of American tale. The Power of
1: One is brought to you by McLean's in partnership with the Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and co-produced by me, Sarmishta Subramanian. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our researcher is Patricia Treble. Stephanie Phillips contributed editorial guidance and support. Audio credit for this episode goes to CNBC, Voice of America News, ETMX, Faces of Mexico, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Special thanks to Charlie Gillis, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, Annalisa Nielsen, and Milena Boscovic. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. See you next time.
0: Download a new weekly episode of The Power of One, brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, only on Prime Video.